Good morning. Happy third Sunday of Advent. The joy candle was lit today. And if you're joining us online, uh, welcome. Uh, if, you haven't, if we haven't met, my name is Greg, one of the pastors, and thrilled to be here, and I hope you are too. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, Chris has recently been accepted at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and that's an exciting thing. He's going to get in the uh, MDiv, Master of Divinity uh, Department, and he'll probably start in the spring. So uh, I think that's something worth celebrating for us. Yep. And then just the last few days, I guess, or maybe the last week or so, I've really been appreciating our production team. Uh, people have just come out of the woodwork and gone the extra mile as we get this online campus up and running. And just the diligence and, and the, um, the, the exceptional servants' hearts, the knowledge, all those things have been so encouraging to me. And then our worship community, too, just all the people that are involved in worshiping. We have so many excellent worship leaders. I've just been appreciating them. And then I've been appreciating Marcel lately as well. Yeah. He's got the kind of job that if he does it really well, we don't really notice, right? Um, but anyway, just been appreciating some people in our church, so thank you for all that. Uh, I've seen Advent, maybe you have too, a little differently this year. Um, perhaps it's caused me to be more aware of the dark side of the first Advent. And we've had kind of a dark year, if you haven't noticed, and so it causes me to read the, uh, the Advent narrative in Scripture a little bit differently and to see maybe behind the scenes some of the things that have been going on. The first Advent, you may or may not be aware, came in a really dark and disturbing time in history for the Jewish people who lived in Judea. They, they lived in this oppressive occupation of Rome, uh, and Herod the Great uh, was a wicked and evil king. A very difficult time, and something that we don't often think of, or, or maybe you have, but when the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, right? It's got four chapters, if I remember, and the last chapter four only has four or five verses. And then when Malachi ends, God is silent for 400 years until the narrative that we'll read today. And so that's another thing that the Jewish people were living with, right? This, this four, can you imagine? That's twice, almost twice as long as America's been around that nobody heard from God. And that was the first advent, this pretty dark and disturbing moment. So I want to start with this verse today that, that kind of frames my perception of advent. Uh, before we go to that slide... Notice the title, and I think we sang a song about this today, Joy Comes in the Morning. And that's, that's not a typo. That's something that I would like for us to consider today. But there's a verse, Psalm 30, uh, verse 5, the second part of verse 5, that I think kind of frames my perception of Advent this year, a, a, an overarching perception. 
And it says, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And that's a little bit of what I'd like us to consider today as we move forward today. Uh, it frames this scope. With that said, I want to read our text for today. Our text is from Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 25. The larger context I mentioned, Malachi comes to an end. The curtain draws close on the Old Testament. God goes silent for 400 years. No word from God, no prophets, no, no scripture inspired by God is given to God's people until we step here into Luke's gospel. And we'll see how Luke connects the dots for us as we read. Now, what I'm going to do is make some comments. I want to read the passage and make some comments to further kind of unpack the context for you. Some people get bugged when I do that. They're like, why do you have to add to Scripture? But what I'm really doing here is just helping us to understand it a little bit better. So I hope you're not offended by it. But I want to read a little bit, comment, keep reading until we get through the passage. So Luke 1, starting in verse 5, it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, and I, as I said, Herod's a, uh, Herod is a wicked puppet king uh, appointed by Rome. And he wasn't even born Jewish. He, he's a descendant of Esau, uh, and he practiced the Jewish religion. And then there was a priest, back to the scripture, a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife um, of the daughter of Aaron, which means she was from the tribe of a, a Levite tribe. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that they were sinless. I want to get that out there. It means that they were uh, sincere and they were devout in their faith. Because if you see that as sinless, you might think, well, I got to be sinless. And we, that's hard to do. That's <laughs> like, you know, right? That's really hard to do. And so, back to the scripture, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And now while he was serving, Zacharias was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Now, the division of Abijah was one of 24 priestly divisions. We see that back in 1 Chronicles 24. And each one ministered twice a year uh, at the temple. And in the bigger feasts, all the 24 divisions came and served in the temple. And so, uh, back to Scripture, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now, burning incense happened twice a day, and it was a symbol of, of praise and prayers and thanksgiving uh, on behalf of God's people. And being chosen to burn incense in the, in the temple was a really esteemed honor, even though it was by lot. Some priests never, ever got the chance to burn incense in the temple before the Lord. And so this day might have been a highlight of Zacharias' uh, priestly career. Could have been. And then back to Scripture, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
Now, why would Luke tell us that it was on the right side? There's different thoughts about that. Some, some theologians would say that in, in Scripture, in the Old Testament primarily, we see the right hand as the power of God, and the left hand would be the worship of God. The orthodox branch of the Christian faith, they would say the right side, the right hand symbolizes blessing and mercy, and the left hand represents justice. So in some sense, Zacharias noticed the right side that would have said something to him. We're not sure exactly what. Back to the scripture. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, you think? And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And not, we don't know exactly what his prayer was. Because he was so advanced in age, his prayer probably wasn't, I still want a son. That was probably gone. But it was his prayer for the Messiah to come. We don't know exactly what he's praying for, but this, this is what's going on here. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And that's what we want to unpack today, joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He shall drink no wine uh, nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is where it gets connected to Malachi. It's a quote. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that's this last chapter of the Old Testament that Luke so wisely uh, ties right here to this passage. God's going to send, before the Messiah comes, an Elijah-type prophet to prepare the way for him. Uh, and, and this verse connects it all together. Back to scriptures. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, if you were here last week or happened to see last week, but whatever, last week we spoke of the difference between reacting and responding. And this certainly would be more of a reaction. And if you think about Mary and Zacharias, the angel appears to Mary, tells her uh, that she's going to give birth uh, to the Son of God, and she asks a question too, right? And then he appears to Zacharias, and he asks a question. So what's the difference? Mary's question is more like, help me understand. Help me understand how I can get pregnant when I'm a virgin. So that, that's, the, that's the responsive kind of question that Mary asked. Zacharias's question was more like, prove it. Prove it to me. And that's where we get this difference between reacting and responding. Back to Scripture. And the people were waiting for Zacharias 
and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he made signs to them and remained, we, don't, we shouldn't use the word dumb anymore, but mute maybe would be a better word uh, to use. Uh, it means something different in our current cultural context, right? And, and when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. It's thought that they lived kind of in, um, outside the city. He was probably a rabbi in his community outside the city, something along those lines. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she hid herself. Five in the Bible, by the way, is the number of grace. I don't know what, how that connects. Saying, this is, thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. It was shameful uh, when a woman couldn't give birth. You probably know that. So with all that said, hope you can see it in a little different light now. Let's pray together. Lord, this Advent, a different time, dark time for them and somewhat dark for us as well. Lord, how do we find joy in the midst of dark times? That's our question for you today. So we give this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The narrative that we just read addresses some really uh, strategic heart issues. Uh, it's a depiction of human suffering, sadness coming from decades for Zacharias and Elizabeth of the brokenness of infertility. And while infertility is awful, it's just one condition of many that has the capacity to, to steal our joy from us. We want joy to break through in our lives. I don't think it's unrealistic to say that we have all encountered and maybe are currently encountering roadblocks to a durable and residential joy that is promised to us as believers. I don't know where you are in that. I know I've got roadblocks still. And the portrayal of this couple's suffering and their suffering turning to joy, hopefully it can remind us that the pain of our trials, we, we have this limited perspective of what God wants to do in our lives. And sometimes that inhibits the joy from flowing into our current circumstances. We're invited by this Advent narrative to renew our active trust in God's will. Even through a current veil of sorrow and tears, if necessary. And this may give new meaning to the verse we looked at at the beginning, Psalm 30, the second part of verse 5. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, we think of nighttime as 12 hours depending on the season, right? But I think we need to think of nighttime as a metaphor. And uh, one of my mentors, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, 
But one of my mentors in talking about a season, because we think a season is limited to like to football season or basketball season or the never-ending baseball season in the regular time of year. Um, but this is what my mentor used to say to me. He would say, a season lasts as long as it takes God to do a work in your life. That's kind of what he was saying to me. And I think this nighttime piece, this, this nighttime metaphor is very similar. It's nighttime, and it, it, nighttime will last as long as it takes for God to do this work, and then the joy will come. The joy will come. For Zacharias and Elizabeth, it was decades. And for the people of Israel, it was 400 years. And maybe that helps to put your current circumstances into some helpful perspective. I'd like to spend the next few minutes reminding us of how the Bible instructs us on how we can receive joy from God. And then I'd like to close by providing maybe an overview of the journey of joy. And so we've got receiving joy, and we've got the journey of joy that I hope will be very helpful for you. So receiving joy, there's six perspectives about receiving joy that I want to pass on to you. And I'm, I'm, if you're a note taker, don't try and take notes on all this. Just pick out one or two that you think are applicable to you today. That might be helpful. We always kind of put our notes, who's ever preaching, on the website near the passage when you go back and, and take a look uh, if you want to take a listen. So they'll be up on there too. So the first one. Joy comes to us from the Holy Spirit. It's not our efforts. It's not our imagination. It's not our family upbringing where we get our joy, uh, where our joy comes from. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And from a Christian perspective, true joy doesn't emanate from our emotions. It emanates from what Christ has done in our lives. And I think that'll become more clear as we walk through this. It's, it, it says it's, it's not so much emotional as it is spiritual, but it ends up affecting our emotions. And so as part of that, joy, our joy is received. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, you received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What that tells me is that there's this capacity in us, uh, and I, I think of it as a reservoir. You know, we, we had a bit of a drought in the summer that caused the foliage to turn a little early. In California, there's seasons of drought. I know where I live, the, the reservoir is, is often low. And I think each one of us, you and I, we have a reservoir of joy that God wants to fill as we learn how to receive this joy from Him. And so the next thing we'd see in that context of joy comes from the Holy Spirit, joy is the fruit, not the goal. And we see that in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. 
And so if, if we pursue joy, if we pursue love, if we pursue peace, we'll never really get there. But if you pursue God, if you pursue the person of Jesus Christ, the fruit of that pursuit will be joy. So don't focus on joy. Focus on Christ. The fruit will be joy. The second perspective, joy comes to us as citizens of the kingdom of God. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom in the last year. When Jesus came the first time, he established it. When he comes the second time, he's going to consummate it. We live in this in-between period of time, the already and the not yet. There's cert certain things are accessible to us, but not everything that will come at the consummation. And so we see in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. It's not the, it's not the things of this world, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The free gift of righteousness, the peace that passes all understanding, and this reservoir of joy that God wants to build in our hearts. The third perspective, joy comes to us through faith. That is from believing God. It's not a blind faith. It's, it's not a leap of faith. Our faith comes from being able to engage and talk to God and to ask questions, and Scripture has plenty of answers for us. And so it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap of faith. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There's a certain amount of joy that comes at conversion or in the ongoing belief of trusting in God that begins to fill this reservoir of joy. And then Philippians 1.25, Paul says, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That, that's part of Paul's role is to be with them for their progress and joy. And we're with one another, friends, spouses, uh, we're with one another for each other's progress and joy. The fourth perspective, joy comes to us through heartfelt worship. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, sometimes people take this out of context, right? I hope you're not one of those people. Have you ever run into somebody... They're really trying hard to be joyful. They're really trying hard to be upbeat all the time because they think that's the faithful, right thing to do. But you can kind of see that they're not really as happy as they're trying to be or, or as happy or as joyful as they're trying to be for our sake. And I would say that that's not what this is talking about. What I think this is talking about, rejoice in the Lord always, is... It's an invitation to give ourselves to worship in new ways. Sometimes in a, in a congregational setting, you know, we come to church and, 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 and it can be difficult for us to really give ourselves into worship. That sometimes it's fully appropriate to lift our hands. This is the universal sign of surrender, right? Uh, and to, to lift our hands or maybe to get out in the aisle, get on your knees, 
or get on your face before God. Those are perfectly acceptable things to do in the context of that uh, that worship set that we do. It's not a warm-up to the sermon. It's actually in some ways maybe even more important that we rejoice always, that we give ourselves uh, to, to joy, to worship the Lord. Something happens in us when we give ourselves to that. For some of us guys, we might need to think about what it would be like to be at a Patriots game in a close game. That might help us to get a little more physical or excited or worshipful in a worship context. But that's what it's talking about. Don't try to pretend like you're happy all the time or joyful, but when there's an opportunity to worship, if it's in your car, if it's in here, give yourself to worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Sometimes... Sometimes worship is a sacrifice. Sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes we're angry or frustrated or sorrowful. And this is an invitation that wherever you're feeling, give yourself, open your heart to worship him. And that helps to fill this reservoir with joy. Number five, the fifth perspective. Joy comes from fellow believers who work hard to help us to focus on these sources of joy. Paul says to the Corinthians, we are workers with you for your joy. And again, that we help each other with joy. Our frontline shepherds in our church are the community group facilitators, right? They're the frontline people that are working for your joy. That's part of what's going on when you meet together. So I would say again, if you're not in a community group, I really want you to get in a community group. If I was a permanent pastor, you might get mad at me. Uh, Because if somebody came to me for counseling, the question I would ask them is, are you in a community group? If they say, well, no, I'm not. But can you counsel me? I'd say no. I'd I'd say it nicer than that. I'd say, I don't think so. But anyway, I'd say no. I'd say, get in a community group, and if you got this same problem in three or four months, bring your community group facilitator, and we'll get together, we'll talk about it. So a lot of our issues as people can be resolved when we do that in the context of being in community with other people. And it's for their joy. Paul says, we're workers with you, for your joy. And the the sixth perspective, joy comes from the sanctifying effects of tribulation. And that's what we're seeing today with Zacharias and Elizabeth, the heart of the Advent message for us today. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says, we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. Another passage, James talks about this too, James 1, 2, and 4. Consider it all joy. It's not just blowing smoke here. It's real. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, that you may, that a better word would be mature, complete, lacking in, in nothing. 
This is hard to do unless there's some understanding in our heart that there's joy on the other side. There's joy in the morning. Once we have that perspective, then when we go through a difficult time, we have this idea that, okay, let's move through this to get to the joy. There's a true story about John Wesley, founder of the Methodist denomination. He was a circuit-riding preacher, and that's part of the genius of Wesley and the Methodists, that not only was he a great preacher, preaching to people in the fields, etc., but the Methodists, they, they divided people into groups, and then they'd do this circuit riding, and they'd go and encourage these small groups, small churches, house churches, kinds of things that oftentimes grew bigger. And so Wesley was a circuit riding preacher. He was, he was riding along on his horse one day when he had realized that he'd gone two full days without experiencing noticeable persecution in his life. Two full days. No persecution. And so he's like worried. No one had falsely accused him, slandered him, threatened him, or ridiculed him. I don't know if you're the great, first great awakening. People got after the preachers. They'd throw, you know, rotten fruit. They would shout. They'd beat drums so that people couldn't hear them. It was really a difficult time. So this lack of a visible experiential persecution caused great concern for John Wesley. And he had wondered if he had somehow lost the favor of God as he's riding along here. And then desiring to search his heart for what he may have done wrong, Wesley got off his horse, knelt down behind a bush, and began to repent and to pray and to cry out to God. And then soon afterwards, while he was doing this, another man was riding down the same uh, road, and he heard this strange noise coming from inside this bush or behind this bush, and he threw a rock at the bush and hit Wesley in the head. And you know what happened? Wesley began to rejoice and praise God that the Lord's favor had not departed him. It's kind of funny, but how sensitive was Wesley to this idea that if you're a believer, persecution is just part of the deal. So let's turn to the journey of joy. I'd like to spend the next few minutes describing how I have seen uh, the Bible describe this journey of how joy, true joy, happens in our lives. Healthy relationships, healthy endeavors in life follow, I think, a predictable biblical cycle. Uh, there's this initial attraction. We call that the romance phase. And then it moves to what's called a disillusionment phase, and, and then it moves into joy. So what are we talking about here? Most of us in the room can relate to the romance phase. As I said, it's, it's, a, it's this initial passionate attraction phase. Whether it's another person, it could be uh, a career focus, an idea, a business idea, or a ministry idea. Any one of our longings, there can be a romance phase where we just get really excited. I've been really excited about cycling the last couple of years. I'm still in my romance phase for that. And then comes the disillusionment phase. 
And I think a lot of people don't understand what goes on in the disillusionment phase. But to have an illusion is to have a false idea, right? Correct? To have an illusion is to have a false idea, a false expectation. So to be disillusioned is to have that false idea eradicated, begin to see and engage reality for what it truly is. So to be disillusioned is actually a really good thing and a really important thing for us. It's hard, but it's actually really essential that we get there because it unmasks a false idea. It unmasks a faulty belief system. And disillusionment is actually a fork in the road. We can turn back. We can give up. We can try and place the blame on somebody else. We can open ourselves up, on the other hand, to God and recommit ourselves to the purpose that He has for us. Most divorces is where one or both spouses get to that fork in the road and decide not to re-up, not to recommit, not to deal effectively with this disillusionment phase. The joke I always use is, ladies, when you get married, maybe six, nine months into the, the marriage, you wake up, you look over across the bed, that guy's there sawing logs, and you might be thinking, what in the world did I do? That's the beginning. You don't find it as funny as I do, because... That's the, that may be the beginning of the disillusionment phase. And as I was thinking about this, maybe for the last couple of weeks, I realized something. I'm in a disillusionment phase regarding the church, not this church. I love this church, and I, well, I love the whole church too, but I've been doing ministry with churches many times in crisis. Again, this is not a crisis, it's transition. COVID is a crisis, there's that. But I've worked with a lot of churches in the last 22 years now, permanent pastor for 16 before that, and I am, I realized that I used to look at it like, well, that church is screwed up, this church is struggling, and that church, oh, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I've come to see that the Big Seat Church, from my perspective, is pretty screwed up that we've missed God. And I, I happen to think that is one of the reasons, one of the ways that God is using COVID, et cetera, all the other things that have gone on in our country. I happen to think God is using that to show us that we are not what He's called us to be. And that as, um, as we move forward from this time, I hope we learn the lessons that God wants to teach us. Again, I'm speaking more to Big C Church than I am to this church because I think our staff, our elders, what I talk to you, there's a longing to learn from this time and make the necessary adjustments to take us into the future. As we embrace our current reality through, first and foremost, owning our own issues, right? That's where we start. Repenting as needed recommitting to walk in reality, we make a way for, the, for this durable, I love the word durable joy. That's that phrase, is kind of, I don't, forget where I heard it, but that phrase has really struck, stuck with me. For a durable joy 
to take a deep root in our soul, and then that concept of a, a joy reservoir that's in our heart, our soul. John 8.32, I think John is speaking to this kind of thing, and I think there's more to it than, than, than what I'll encourage you to see today, but he says in John 8.32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I think that's regarding salvation. I think that's the gospel. But I also think it's when you and I will acknowledge what is real, that we will be disillusioned in a good way, we'll see what's real, we'll engage in reality, we'll embrace that, as painful as it might be, so that we can move forward and night turns to morning, which brings the joy. So I think understanding these dynamics helps us to see the bigger picture of what God's doing. What to expect when we go through difficult times. How to proceed. Difficult times mean God's up to something. And the best thing, the best question to, to ask is, God, what are you up to in this time? Has anybody ever told you that if you, if you leave Egypt and walk to Sinai, it takes about 40 days. How long did it take the Israelites to get there? Remember? Yeah, 40 years. So it's like 40 days or 40 years. What do you want? And I've, I've taken a, a few laps around Mount Sinai in my life, and I'm, I, su I, I suppose and suggest that maybe you have too. But I think once we see what God's up to, once we see that these difficult times, God's up to something, wants to train us, wants to teach us, wants to show us something, that we'll get there a little sooner. Okay, I'm going to move towards a conclusion here. W one last takeaway for you today. I couldn't pass this up, sorry. One of his sermons, John... Piper pointed out that Zacharias being struck, um, unable to speak by the angel Gabriel, was more a gift than a punishment. And some of you can see that right away. It's more of a gift than a punishment. During those nine months, Zacharias was forced to be quiet, forced to think deeply, ponder God, ponder the Scriptures, ponder the scope of his relationships, ponder his calling as a priest, ponder his calling as a father coming out to communicate with his wife, to communicate with other people. He needed to look them right in the eye. He needed to learn how to communicate love and affection and encouragement and everything else by looking at people because he couldn't talk, right? So this is, this is a gift, this difficult time, more of a gift than a punishment. As a result of this forced quiet time, Zechariah emerged with a whole new perspective and attitude. If you go back, if you go into the chapter, it starts at verse 67, Luke 1, 67, where Zechariah prophesies when his tongue is loosened, his son is born, and this beautiful, beautiful prophecy comes forth from him. It indicates he's refreshed, he's revitalized. So sometimes, my point in saying this is sometimes we think we're in the corner, and really, God is training us. And it's not a punishment. It's a gift for us to keep growing so that this joy reservoir can develop 
in our hearts. God's, he's not angry with us. He's helping us to see his purpose. Last little thing. Like this church in my early pastoral days, I spent what I now come to, to describe as a, as a hyper-charismatic phase. That's kind of how this church started. I was in a very similar phase when, when I became a, uh, my first pastoral role in a church back in 1980. Uh, it's been a while. During this season, there was this prophetic man that, that used to come through our town, our region, about once a year. He and his wife would drive around the country. C.L. Moore, C.L. and Ruth Moore were their names. C.L. didn't stand for anything. It was just C.L. And he'd drive around. We'd hear he's coming, and we'd invite him. And so C.L. would come. Sometimes he'd stay with us, sometimes other people. And we usually have like a midweek meeting and C.L. would preach, and then he'd prophesy over people. And it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. Back then, we had a typewriter in the room, and someone would type. And then, and then cassettes. If you don't know what a cassette is, ask your mom and dad. But we had these cassettes where you could record it, and then someone else would type it, and then they'd type out the prophecies for people and give them out to people. And so... If you're one of those folks that grew up in a context where the idea of New Testament prophecy is, 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 is uncool, in, these, in this sense, there's no extra biblical revelation. It's, it's more like speaking God's heart to people. That's New Testament prophecy. It's kind of like how God sees you. First uh, Corinthians, uh, uh, let me just, a parenthesis here. First Corinthians 14 Verse 1 says, um, what does it say? Desire earnestly spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. That desire earnestly means zealous. Be zealous for spiritual, especially prophecy. Then verse 3 of, of chapter 14 tells us the purpose of New Testament prophecy. is for edification, encouragement, and comfort. And so that's what this guy did. And, and C.L. Moore also prophesied mostly in rhyme. It was, a, it was pretty incredible. Uh, he was a retired airplane mechanic. Probably didn't finish high school. And yet here he's traveling around these churches prophesying in rhyme to these people. So why am I telling you this? I want to tell you about a prophecy he gave to me. Most of his prophecies were pretty long. And I remember every time he came through, he would prophesy over me at some point. And here's one of his, a stanza of a rather long prophetic word that as soon as he spoke it, has never left my soul. And this is what he said to me. Something along the lines of the Lord would say, um, brand new pastor, right? He's, and this is, the, this is part of his word. I shall need thee, K-N-E-A-D, until the need, N-E-E-D, of my people is met. And I'm like, dang it. Right? Like, I'm brand new pastor, you know, maybe a year in, thinking it's going to be awesome. And then I realize... Hey, this, this pastor thing could get hard. 
This could be a tough road to choose to walk with God in this thing. And I'll tell you, something happened to me when he said that. His, his, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, but a yoke landed on my shoulders. And I had a decision to make at that point, right? Am I going to let God do in me and through me what it's going to take to become the kind of pastor that he's called me to be? Or am I going to shrink back and go, oh, that seems too hard? But I would suggest that we all have those decisions to make. Here's the beauty of the gospel as we bring this to a close. Land the plane. The gospel is not dependent on what you do or what you don't do, is it? If you think it is, you haven't understood the gospel. The gospel is dependent on what Jesus Christ has already done for you and for me. And that's why we celebrate Advent, isn't it? Because 400 years of silence, and then God shows up, incarnated. You ever get carnitas at the Mexican restaurant? That means flesh. So incarnation means in the flesh. Next time you go to a Mexican restaurant, that won't be so pretty for you to think about that. But it's, it's not dependent on us. It's wholly dependent on God. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Dependent on God through what Jesus Christ has done. If you've trusted in Christ already, use this Advent season to re-up to open your heart in a fresh way, to let Him have His way in you and through you. Will there be difficult times? Absolutely. Will there be persecution? Absolutely. Will He show up in your life and, and want to show you reality? This is, what, this is what's real. Whatever you've been pretending to see or wanting to see, let it go. This is real. Brace it. And if you haven't trusted Christ, we would love to talk more with you about that. Online, if, if you want somebody to pray for you right now, you could do that. You could choose to do that. Or if somebody here wants to talk and pray more about or consider what Jesus has to say, we would love to be able to talk to you more about that. So let me close with a prayer for us this third Sunday of Advent. Lord, you are up to something. You are up to something in this country, around the world. You're up to something in your church, this thing called the body of Christ. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to respond, not react to what you're doing, what you're up to. And for us as individuals, for us as couples, as families, you're up to something. There's difficult times. And Lord, we confess that we often react like Zacharias did. And yet you didn't punish him, you gave him a gift. 
I pray that we would see suffering, trials as a potential gift, that you're trying to teach us something, show us something, help us to see you and your purpose more clearly in our lives and in the world around us. So we freshly submit to you as people and as a church, and we say, have your way with us this Christmas season. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.